Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 91, where we go back Back to the past past. and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by order of the king via his heralds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry. This week we have a very special issue picked by our good friend Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. All right. you can, yeah, you can find him on Twitter at BigOx737. He also maintains a blog, comicscomicscomics.blogspot.com. Oh, and, oh no, that, no, it was, Word, it was a WordPress. I'm sorry. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's actually comicscomicscomics.blog somehow. He's, he's oh, a, how about that? He's obviously a URL wizard, I have to tell you. He, he, <laughs> he's got to be. I don't know how he did it, but he'd done it, so that, that's, that's where you find it. But... uh. The book he picked was Sergio Argones' Drew the Wanderer, number one. Cover date, December 1982, published by Pacific Comics. Their tagline is, for the new era in comics, right there in the uh, in the letterbox or whatever. Art and stories by Sergio Aragones, lettering by Stan Sakai, coloring by Gordon Kent, and interpreting by Mark Evanier. Cover price is $1 US and $1.25 Canada. And we're going to jump right into our bios here and talk about a fellow who we really haven't gone too uh, too deep oh, with, uh, shockingly almost. Deserves deserves a probably a, a much more expanded uh, episode, but we'll do what we can here. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, of course, Sergio Aragones, uh, or Sergio Aragones Dominic. He was born September 6, 1937, in San Mateo, Castillo, Spain. Uh, he emigrated with his family to France uh, due to the Spanish Civil War before winding up settling in Mexico when he was six years old. Uh, he loved drawing at a very early age. As uh, one anecdote goes, Aragonis was once left alone in a room by his parents with a box of crayons. When his parents returned sometimes later, they found that he'd covered the walls in hundreds upon hundreds of drawings. Nice. I think I did that once too, but they didn't make me. They didn't say I was a great artist. Yeah, they just got hit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Aragonis recalled his early difficulties in Mexico, saying, uh, I didn't have too many friends because I had just arrived. You're the new kid, and you have an accent. I've always had an accent. When the other kids make fun of you, you don't want to get out of the house. You stay at home, and what do you do? You take pencils and start drawing. Uh, he further recalled that the earliest money I ever made was with drawings. The teacher would give us homework, which would consist of copying Chapter 11, including the illustrations, a beetle or a plant, the pistol of a flower or soldiers, that type of thing. All the kids who couldn't draw would leave a square where the drawing was, and I would charge them to draw that. The equivalent of a few pennies. That's probably why I draw so fast, because I drew so many of them. He made his per- first professional sale in 1954 when a high school classmate submitted his work to a magazine without even telling him. But uh, he took the money, so that was fine. (laughs) Uh, He continued to sell gag cartoons to magazines while studying architecture at the University of Mexico. There, he learned pantomime under the direction of Alejandro Jodorowsky. But he says, I joined the class not to become a mime, but to apply its physical aspects of movement to my comics. According to Aragonis, he arrived in New York in 1962 with nothing but $20 and his portfolio of drawings. Now, after working odd jobs around the city, he went to Mad Magazine's offices on Madison Avenue, hoping to sell some of his cartoons. He recalls, I didn't think I had anything that belonged in Mad. I didn't have any satire. I didn't have any articles. But everyone was telling me, oh, you should go to Mad. Uh, since his knowledge of English was not very extensive, he asked for the only mad artist he knew that knew of that spoke Spanish. This is a Cuban-born artist, Antonio Projias, from the creator of the comic strip Spy vs. Spy. Argonis hoped uh, Projias uh, would serve as an interpreter between him and the mad editors, but this proved to be a mistake, since Projias knew even less English than he did. I mean, he didn't even have words in his comics, so that kind of tells you everything <laughs> <That's true>. you <laughs> know. <laughs> no, but he has, did receive Aragonis very enthusiastically, and with difficulty introduced the young artist to the mad editors as Sergio, my brother from Mexico, uh, temporarily leading to even further confusion, And as the mad editors thought he was Sergio Projias. Well, who knows, for, for the lack of a few letters. 
Uh, Mad <laughs> editor Al Feldstein and publisher Bill Gaines liked what they saw from Sergio, and Aragonis became a contributor to the magazine in 1963. His first sale was an assortment of Ashnar cartoons, which the editors arranged into a themed article, and that appeared in Mad Number no. 76, January 1963 cover date. With the publication of the 500th issue in 2009, Aragone's work had appeared in 424 issues of Mad, second only to Mad Folden painter Mad Al Jaffe, who was in forging 51 issues all on the back cover. Uh, he's best known for the series A Mad Look At, which collects a bunch of his cartoons, this is Sergio, by some specific theme, and Mad Marginals, which I remember the best. Wordless <laughs> cartoons drawn by Aragones that appear in the magazine's gutters and margins. Prior to Aragones' arrival at Mad, the magazine had sometimes filled its margins with text jokes under the catch-all heading Marginal Thinking. Aragones convinced Al Feldstein to use his cartoons by creating a dummy sample issue with his marginals drawn along the edges. The staff of Mad enjoyed his marginals, but did not expect him to be able to maintain the steady stream of small cartoons needed for each issue. He's provided marginals for every issue of Mad since 1963 except one, because his contributions to that issue were lost by the post office. <laughs> uh, and associate editor Jerry DeFuccio said, writing the marginal thinking marginals had always been a pain in the butt. Sergio made that pain go away. Uh, in 1967, he began writing and illustrating full stories for various DC comic titles, including The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, Angel and the Ape, The Inferior Five, Young Romance, and for various horror anthologies. Uh, he would also write or plot stories drawn by other artists as well. Uh, Aragonis helped to create DC's Western series Bat Lash, that was 1968, as well as the humor title Plop in 1973. Aragonas broke with DC when the company began insisting on work-for-hire contracts. When Aragonas balked, an editor tore up his paycheck right in front of his face. Wow. A little hardcore. I'd really like to know what uh, editor that was, but I could not find out. That's true, huh? <laughs> now, uh, Aragonis had created the humorous barbarian uh, comic book, Grew the Wanderer, with Marc Avanier in the late 1970s. However, the character did not appear in print until 1982, uh, first appearing in Destroyer Duck number 1, May 1982 cover date. Uh, Grew was so named because Aragonis sought a name which meant nothing in any language. And uh, we're going to meet Grew in just a little bit, right after we meet the guy who helped him with the words. But, you know, Grew... Uh, you know, as a as a homonym, it does mean the past tense of grow. Of grow, anyway. yeah. <laughs> uh, also makes me think of, uh, if you ever played Zork, the, the Gru was the uh, monster in the dark, G-R-U-E. Anyway, that was that was <laughs> after this, though this probably takes from t its cues sure. from this comic. So Mark Stephen Avanier was born March 2nd, 1952 in Santa Monica, California. He chose to be a writer after witnessing the misery his father felt from working for the Internal Revenue Service and contrasting that with the portrayal of a writer's life on The Dick Van Dyke Show. He graduated from University High School in 1969. He was president of a Los Angeles comic book club from 1966 to 69, and in 1967, he suggested the titles of the officers of the Mary Marvel Marching Society, which we know became a thing later. He made his first professional sale in 1969 to Marvel Mania Monthly Magazine 2, cover date 1970, and the same year, through a mutual association with Marvel Comics' mail-order firm, uh, Mark was taken on as a production assistant to Jack Kirby. Several years later, Avanier began writing foreign comic books for the Walt Disney Studio program, and then from 1972 to 1976, wrote scripts for other Gold Key comics. In 1974, Mark teamed with uh, writer Dennis Palumbo and wrote for a number of television series, including The Nancy Walker Show, The McLean Stevenson Show, and... Welcome back, Cotter. Uh, after the con cancellation of Cotter in 1979, uh, on which he was uh, one of the story editors, Vanier and Palumbo amicably ended their partnership. Mark would subsequently write for the Hanna-Barbera comic book division and a number of variety shows and specials. And he also began writing for animated cartoon shows, including Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, The Plastic Man Comedy Slash Adventure Show, Thundar the Barbarian, The ABC Weekend Special, also, Yogi Bear's all-star comedy Christmas caper, the Berenstain Bears show, Richie Rich, the Wuzzles. Remember the Wuzzles? I do. And uh, Dungeons and Dragons, another cartoon I loved as a kid. And uh, we'll, mm -hmm. get, we'll get back to these guys, but now we'll dive right in here. 
Absolutely. Sergio Aragonas grew the Wanderer, number one. Our cover shows grew, who is a, sort of shaped like a potato with legs. If you're familiar with him, you, you know him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's wielding one of the swords he carries on his back. Strangely, uh, these are katanas. Uh, an imposing shadow of large aggressor in a horned helmet is cast across Gru, his sword pointed down. A small dog is at Gru's leg, happily wagging its tail and probably, lo- probably looking for nice pets. Yeah, at the wrong time. Hmm. Uh, a word on the logo for Gru, it's the words Gru the Wanderer with Gru's swords kind of hung loosely behind it, and it's pretty iconic and great. I've always liked this mm-hmm. one a lot. This really takes me back to when... I don't know, common book logos are more designed, I guess you could say. Yeah, they're less less digitized. Less, it's, just, it, it, it's like less a hand, generic. A hand yeah. did it, and like this is just to me, you know, this this says, you know what you're getting inside this comic, but anyway. Absolutely. We open with a note from Sergio. Uh, the first page is sort of an editorial by Sergio Aragonis. He addresses the reader directly from his cluttered studio. He says, hola, I am Sergio Aragonis, and I am pleased to welcome you to the first issue of Gru the Wanderer. For many years, I have wanted to share the stories of Groove with the world. But the comic book publishers all said, if you tell the tales in our magazines, we own them in total forever. For years, they wouldn't even discuss any other arrangement. A creator would ask for a teensy percentage of this creation and be told no. Sergio, it's impossible, they told me. They had hundreds of reasons why an artist couldn't share in the profits his idea made. And it was impossible until along came new publishers like Pacific Comics offering creators the same rights they get in any other field. And you know what happened? Suddenly, all the publishers found a way to do it. Amazing, no? So I am pleased now to share the tale as I've waited so long to tell. Ladies and gents, meet Gru. The story title is Friends and Enemies. A scroll heralds what we should expect from the story. Okay, I'm going to try to do this the right way. Yes. In a time far away, in a land long ago, a warrior would rumble from place to place. Now too long would he stay, and for his soul called him fro. And because most folks just couldn't stand his face. Eh, could could the better. Very good. <laughs> Grew hides behind a large tree, while a very angry army in horned helmets rush past looking for them. Uh, they're pretty singular about their purpose. Yes, the first soldier goes, We must skewer Gru! Another one says, We must hang Gru! Third one goes, We will skewer him, then we'll hang him! And another one says, We'll skewer him, then hang him, then stab him, then choke him, then burn him, and then we may really get nasty! They just keep piling on. Now, uh, Gru looks pretty scared, wondering just what all this fuss is all about. Hey, he thinks to himself, there they are again. They want me dead so badly, but who did they work for? Who sent them, and why? Someone has a reason for wanting me dead many times over. But who? I need a place to sort things out. Someplace safe. Gru crawls away behind some tall grass while the bloodthirsty army rages on. He finds kind of a rock outcropping to sit against. Yes, a caption says, And so, Gru does something unique. He thinks. And while he thinks, night falls and a full moon rises high into the sky. And after many hours... Thinks to himself, Of course, the high priest of Zumu. He's still mad about what happened that night many years ago. Almost feel a flashback coming on. Probably. Uh, flash, we flash back indeed to a time where a young Gru was a guard in the army of King Kohan. He had a horned helmet, shield, and cutlass, the proper uh, attire for a guard. He's approached by a couple of fellow guards, obviously friendly with him, and one of them has an eye missing from his face and a horn missing from his helmet. This is Toronto. Toronto goes, Hey, Gru, join us for an evening of brews, bawdy women, and cheese dip. Oh boy, cheese dip. Gru hands his helmet and cutlass to another nearby guard. Got the post while I'm gone. No one on or off without the password. The guard goes, what is the password? The password is password. Cute, huh? I think the IT department would like to have a word with this uh, King Kohan. Yeah, huh? that's not a safe password. Uh, on the way, on the way, on the way to a night of debauchery, the unnamed guy in the red outfit asks a question that you may have been wondering about yourself. Yes, the guard goes, "Hey, Gru, why don't you carry your sword on your belt like a normal?" 
and then Drew whips out his sword with a zip and places it right underneath the poor guy's nose, actually trimming his mustache. Person? And Toronto finds this highly amusing. Yes, Toronto goes, <laughs> Don't mess with Gru. He moves like lightning. Now, bring on the cheese dip. They approach an establishment where the party is clearly in full swing. Get a half-naked girl being chased by a guy holding onto her hair or waving a stein of beer. Well, that doesn't just say it all. That's definitely <laughs> right. out of hand, yeah. <laughs> the guard goes, uh, The zin is forbidden to soldiers. It's illegal and single. We'll close it down. Of course, it may take a few days. They enter this inn, and folks are really getting down in there. Topless women eating turkey legs as a guy standing on the back of another passed-out gentleman lighting his pipe on a wall lantern. A lot of nubbly steins of beer being waved around and delivered by a homely barmaid. Of course, Professor Killjoy has a problem with all this. <laughs> Uh-oh, all full. Looks like we'll have to go elsewhere. Leave it to crew. I'll get us a table, Toronto. Brew approaches a bearded man in a purple vest and taps him on the shoulder. Uh, excuse me, sir. Then Drew walks to a table that is already full of revelers. There's even a guy dancing on the table with uh, bare feet, so uh, he can pretty much just I, I would have skipped that one myself. Yeah, yeah, it's your table, buddy. Drew says, ah, this one is perfect. Drew grabs the guy and with a hi-ya, rolls the man lengthwise across the table. Using a using him sort of as a broom, shoving everyone and everything off the table. Toronto and the guy in red, they sit down immediately. Toronto goes, I can drink eight beers. Bring me eight beers. And Gru's very polite to the guy that he uses a battering ram. <laughs> he straightens his clothes and even wipes off his back. Here, let me dust you off, sir. Man stumbles away confused. But the guard in red looks a little concerned about Gru here, kind of giving him the side eye. I don't know what the deal mm-hmm. is. <laughs> Toronto wants a, plus a couple of pigs. And the guard goes, cooked, preferably. Now, one of the people given to the uh, bomb's rush has some last words that he dare not say aloud. Yes, the bullied fellow thinks to himself, filthy barbarians. Ooh, heavens to Betsy. <laughs> uh, now, drinking and eating, Toronto suggests they find some wenches. And, of course, Gru's on the task again. Mm-hmm. He finds a guy in a brown robe surrounded by beautiful, half-dressed women. That old man can't handle all those women. Let's spread the wealth. Gru is stopped by a bodyguard that grabs him by the nose. He's about a head taller than Gru and wears a helmet with a miniature dragon on it. He says, Oh, friend or foe? Gru grabs the bodyguard by the jewels. Yeah! P- pass, friend! And so Gru struts onto the scene. Literally strutting right on there like a real mm-hmm. lady. He says, smile, ladies, Gru is here to enliven your lives. He approaches the man in the brown robe. Oh, old man, how about sharing your women with some real men? I am Gru, and I... 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 Gru narrates again from the present day and has a flashback within a flashback. Suddenly I recognized the old man. It was the high priest of Zumu, himself. Gru recalls the face of the fellow he's grabbing by the collar, except he's much more adorned and high priest-looking. Right. Uh, we hop back to the original flashback at the Scandalous Inn. What are you doing here, O oh high priest of... And the high priest of, Z- of Zuma interrupts him and goes, Quiet, you blithering fool. Keep your voice down. You want everyone here recognizing me? Don't you realize what would happen? I'm an exalted person. If word got out that I frequented this place, the scandal, the shock. And Gru looks positively wilted by this, uh, <laughs> you know, upbraiding. Uh, he says, never fear, sir. And Gru stands on the bench and announces loudly, No one will ever know that the high priest of Zuma came here. <sighs> the whole room stops their carousing <laughs> and all eyes land on the high priest of Zuma. Oops. <laughs> And back to the present day, Gru is building a campfire while musing about his enemies. Yeah, he thinks to himself, he took it so seriously. So seriously, if you ask me. Being excommunicated isn't the worst thing in the world. But what if it isn't him out to kill me? Who else could have sent those assassins on my tail? Maybe Princess Canaria? Uh Uh-oh, the panel borders are getting cloudy again. 
It was just after I'd been promoted to courier. Brew is rolling dice with some guards, and when some kind of scribe in a green outfit approaches with a message, he says, Gru, the princess wants you. And Gru heads to the princess, who's penning a letter with a quill. And she goes, Gru, you must take this message to Prince Tercios at once. It's of the utmost urgency. His very life depends on you reaching him with this. Fear not, princess. Gru is on the job. And when Gru is on the job, the job is... Shut up! Just deliver it, imbecile. And with that, Gru heads out of the castle walls on horseback and into a forest to intercept the prince. On the way, there he encounters an army. Yes, soldiers. Halt! None shall pass. Lay down your weapon. Uh, Gru isn't going to lay down his weapon. No, that's smart. <laughs> he says, stand fast. It is Gru you are challenging, and it will be your last challenge. Gru? He sheaths his sword, and it turns out that Gru's buddy Toronto is in this army. Mm-hmm, Toronto. Gru, don't you recognize me? It's your old friend Toronto. Toronto, good to see you. Now one side I seek Prince Tercios. So do we. We were waiting with Prince we were waiting for Prince Tercios too. Why not wait here with us? So Gru dismounts his horse and says, Good idea. My rump is killing me. He thinks to himself, God, how I hate horses. Hey Gru, join us for some cards and cheese dip. Amazingly, though, Gru passes up on the cheese dip. He says what? Not now. I need sleep. Wake me when Prince Tercios arrives. I have a message for him of the utmost importance. Gru leans up against the base of a tree and conks right out. An hour later, he wakes up to the sound of fighting. And it's a pretty funny fight sounds, too. We get a lunge, gouge, yow, gag, slice. I just love when, when, I, when the slice sound effect is used. Like what? It, <laughs> yep. it's like, psh, I don't know what that noise it is, but it's just a, gr- a gory <laughs> idea. Uh, Gru says, what's it? A battle? And Gru left out? And Gru leaps right into the fray. Toronto, why didn't you wake me up? Without regard, Gru slices and hacks through the fellas fighting Toronto's army until they are no more. Now Toronto stands atop a heap of their bodies holding a crown and proclaiming victory. Well, that takes care of Prince Tercios and his men. Uh, Prince Tercios? Looks like Gru made a boo-boo. He, well, he wanders around kind of this, I like to call it a battlefield, but it really is just a heap of uh, dead bodies. <laughs> of dead bodies. And he says, uh, Prince Tercios, you, Prince Tercios. From behind a bloodied pile of bodies, a hand is raised. It's Prince Tercios. He goes, yeah. Prince Tercios, I have an important message for you from the princess. Dying, the prince reads the note aloud. Dearest prince, be aware, my father the king has arranged an ambush to try and kill you. I know Gru will get you this warning in time. I love you, my dear. And now, Prince is dead. It's been over two years, and I'm still not over it. No, it's tough to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in the present day, Gru continues to consider his predicament. Yeah, he thinks to himself, she never forgave me. She's so touchy. It must be her. Or perhaps the high priest. Oh, well, what I need now is a place to bed. The next morning, Gru heads in, out into town. So thinks to himself, I haven't eaten for days. Food will strengthen me. And he gets a bowl of, maybe a bowl full of sausages, maybe? Some, so it looks sausage I'm not sure sausages. what that is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's more, he gets it from a cook that kind of looks like a diseased Cheech Marin. Yeah. <laughs> while eating, he thinks to himself, who is it? Who is out to kill me? If I can find out the who, I'll know the why. I think the uh, where and when are probably the big concerns here as well, right? Yeah, that's important stuff to know. Uh, continues to think, my friend Toronto would know who it is. He is all from the grapevine, but he is miles away. I'll need money to find him, which means I need a job. Gru approaches the cook. Gru! Old man, have you heard of anybody needing a fearless warrior? Why, yes, I have. Word is King Kohan needs a new captain. His last one was a real jerk. Was he, he was real incompetent, a bumbler of the First Order. Ever hear of him? His name was Gru. Uh, <laughs> Gru leaves the place disgusted. 
but he does flip the guy a gold coin on his way out. You know, he still does pay his debts. So it's not yeah, a horrible. He settles person. up. Uh, as luck would have it, though, Gru, Gru is approached by an old man in a brown cloak, and he is buying what Gru is selling. The old man goes, "Pardon me, but you are a freelance warrior, are you not? We need one so." The old man takes Gru to a group of townspeople huddled on the street. A band of soldiers is camped in our town, creating havoc and destruction. First, they start drinking. And the guy standing there in a green fez says, Yeah, and then they start the pillaging. And the guy in a purple uniform goes, And then they start raping. And the guy in the fez says, They are evil. And a monk with a blue purse says, If you are a hero, we will pay you anything to get us rid to rid us of them. Grew approves of the arrangement. You have hired Gru, which means you have hired the best. It will be done. Gru strolls away from the village, dropping a sack of gold into his satchel. He thinks to himself, now I have the funds to travel to Toronto. But first, the task. The soldiers make so much noise, they're easy to find. Little do they know, Gru will silence them. Gru comes upon this evil army, all drunk and partying out in the woods. Uh, uh, this is the uh, ritual known as the uh, the kegger. Oh, uh, I used to partake in that when I was in high school, yeah. I <laughs> uh, continues to think to himself, hmm, a whole regiment to silence. This could take an hour or two, but I took the job. It must be done. And Gru jumps out of his hiding spot and starts hacking and stabbing indiscriminately with his sword. And now Gru does what Gru does best. Then... Gru recognizes one of the guys he's skewering. Hey, this is my old army. My buddies. And guess who's here as well? Toronto. Grill? I see you are all armed for battle. What luckless fool will taste the might of your swords? And now the army gathers behind Toronto, and they're all drawing their swords and grinning. <laughs> Toronto goes, yes. And so we find Gru hiding behind a rock, which is behind a tree, and this bloodthirsty army rages by, calling for his head. He <laughs> thinks to himself, oh well, at least I led them away from the village, but if Toronto thinks I'm going to be his friend after this, he's in for a surprise. Mm -hmm. At the bottom of the page, Sergio Aragonas addresses us once again. Next time, the tale of Gru and the missive. See you then. Adios. And a final scroll gives us the lesson of the story. Caption reads, Moral. The friends we make and the friends we lose are all better than the friends who want to make us lose. Aragonus, 82. Seems like some pretty good advice, right, Chris? I guess. Some right? to live, words to live by. You words know, I mean, by. if you yeah. got friends that make you want to make you lose, maybe they aren't friends at all. Oh. Uh, there's also a backup. Speaking of deep thoughts, we have a backup here. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually it's even more. It's got longer than a backup. It's almost like this, the last like third of the book. Feature, yeah. yeah, but uh, it's called The Sage. And according to the title scroll, it says he roamed about the land in a day gone by, and they called him the Sage. Uh, the Sage specifically is an old guy with a long white beard and a man bun, holding a walking stick with a flask of liquid at the end. He's got a dog. And he is the same body type as Gru. Most people are in this world, however, yeah. except for women. You notice that? It's true. Women look like women. <laughs> men look like potatoes with sticks potatoes. on them. Uh, so this sage thinks in his own wise quotes. Yes, he thinks to himself, I've gone without sustenance for many moons now. If the body go unnourished, so shall the soul. And the uh, sage happens upon some soldiers that are hunting down some bison, at least... Uh, they might be bison, it's yaks, something, some animal. A, a beast of some sort. Right, that's the best way. There's some beasts, right? Uh-huh, tribesman setting out on a hunt. The hunter enriches himself not with the conquest, but with its prize. And he that arrives for the prize may claim his without the hunt. So the sage hurries over to the soldiers and attempts to ingratiate himself. Ho there, hunter. Let an elder share your bounty. The hunter says, Stay back, old man. Let the able body do what they must. Charge, men! Claim tonight's meal! Charge! And they do, in fact, charge, and they try to prove their might. Time to prove we are men, not mice! But the bison, they be mightier. 
Retreat! On second thought, I've always liked cheese! The bison batter and gore the soldiers, uh, but since this is a Sergio Aragonas comic, uh, they no. don't die. Their, their tongues uh, gotta hang out of their mouths to show Yeah, they, they get pretty beaten up, yeah. but uh, they don't die, thankfully. Hunter says, there must be a way to do this without getting close to those dangerous beasts. Luckily, the sage has just the thing. The need spawns the answer. I can tell you how to do that. And so he does. What the sage instructs them to make is... It is done. Behold, the catapult. No sight is more filling than a deed done. How does it work? The sage shows them how to work the thing using a nearby rock. And uh, wouldn't you know it, it works flawlessly. Thank you, old timer. Now, no more do we have to sneak up close to those beasts. Free advice is always the best value. I shall return and claim my dinner share. So the sage walks away for a few hours, then returns to find the catapult in use. Oh, already the catapult sings to announce the evening meal, man. Is this the invention? Is this is the invention not a boon? And now the sage emerges fully onto the scene to find the soldiers are launching their own men in the catapult. Lance is extended in hope of stabbing a beast of whatever it is. A bunch of them are planted in the ground, feet sticking up. The rest of the army is lined up, ready to take their turn. And the hunter says, Great old-timer! Now all we need to work on is aim. Wonk, wonk. <laughs> so uh, that was the first ever issue of Gru the Wanderer. What'd you think, Chris, mm-hmm. while we're uh, sitting here thinking about it? I dug it. Uh, I I haven't. I don't have much experience with Gru. Uh, they've always they always seem to be like the book one over from what I was reaching right. for. So I never really had uh, had much experience. But I did enjoy what we read here. Uh, we mentioned this off the air, but it, it's rare that we see you know gag comics, mm-hmm. and it, it's definitely a gag comic. And uh, and it's it's almost refreshing because we don't see them very often. Yeah, uh, it, I, I don't see them like this anymore. There are. No. There are comics with a humorous bent, but sure. they're not they're not ones with like one liners strung one after another. This is just yeah. like this just exists to be funny. And I remember as a kid, I loved it. I bet if you had seen it as a kid, oh, you I'm probably sure. would've would have liked it a lot more, uh, you know, or been a lot more into it. But uh yeah, I I enjoy it. Like, you know, and Sergio it's his artwork is one of these things where it just evokes so much nostalgia for me through Mad sure. and through uh, well, we'll talk about the other things that he did as we when we come back from the break, but uh, it just puts a smile on my face, Chris. I was very glad to go through this. So absolutely, uh, we had a good time with that. But right now, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about JL May, the month long event that we are involved within, ensconced within. Is that the way to put it? Mm-hmm. That's and, good enough. And then uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back and we'll tell you some more stuff. The annual JLMA event is upon us once more. 2018, we're reading The Silver Age from 2001. The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky, Coffee and Comics, Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirl to Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Hello and welcome back. Hey. Uh, we we left you with Gru and we're picking up with Sergio Aragonas, that is. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off with him, uh, uh, leaving after, you know, after Gru came out, of course. Uh, now, among his peers and fans, Aragonas is widely regarded as the world's fastest cartoonist. Uh, Aragonas is a very prolific artist. Uh, Al Jaffe once said... Sergio has, quite literally, drawn more cartoons on napkins in restaurants than most cartoonists draw in their entire careers. In uh, 2002, writer Marc Vanier estimated that Aragonis had written and drawn more than 12,000 wow. gag cartoons from Mad Magazine alone. Amazing. So that's not even counting those uh, restaurant napkins. There. No, definitely. Uh, you got to think, like, he get, you know, I remember he would get, like, a dozen marginals. At each Absolutely. one, and then like one or two features. Yeah, it, it builds up, boy. Absolutely. Now, Ivani's role in making Drew comics was originally as something of a translator, as Aragonis was still somewhat shaky at expressing his ideas in English. Eventually, the two began collaborating on story ideas, and there have been several Gru stories in which Ivanier is credited as the sole writer. Uh, Aragonis has uh, since become fluent in English. 
Initially, Aragonis did pitch Groot to Jim Shooter at Marvel, however insisted that he maintain full ownership. Shooter was amenable to this, and it was the impetus for the changeover of Marvel's creator-owned black-and-white imprint, Epic Illustrated, to become the creator-owned full-color imprint, Epic Comics. Uh, in the interim, Sergio decided to go to Pacific Comics anyway. Uh, well, you know, it was a nice try. Shooter, Shooter wasn't pleased. <laughs> no, he wasn't thrilled with dip. that, no. <laughs> As a uh, creator-owned series, Gru has survived the bankruptcy of a number of publishers, a fact that which led to the industry joke that publishing the series was a precursor to a publisher's demise. Uh, we know that the title was originally published by Pacific Comics, uh, also briefly by Eclipse Comics, and then Marvel under the Epic Comics imprint. And, of course, that's the one that allowed creators to retain copyrights to their work. Right. Then it moved on to Image Comics, and it's currently at Dark Horse Comics. Yeah, only a couple more to do, and he'll have uh, done the whole circuit. The whole thing. Uh, this is a weird little anecdote. On December 2, 1982, actor Marty Feldman died from a heart attack in a hotel room in Mexico City. Aragones, who was filming nearby and was dressed for his role as an armed policeman, had introduced himself to Feldman that night, startling him and frightening him. Uh, this may have induced Feldman's heart attack. <laughs> and so uh, Aragones has recounted that story with the punchline, I killed Marty Feldman. So uh, he also did work on the NBC show Speak Up America, 1980, where he would draw during the show, which I vaguely remember. Uh, mm. Aragonis has worked in television animation, and his segments were used for many years on D Dick Clark bloopers programs. This was would be beginning in 1984. They would always they would kind of like be the title card, and there would always be like janitors shuffling away uh, the scenes. I don't know if you remember this mm -hmm. at all. I think so, yeah. Uh, Mark Vanier related an anecdote from their time on the short-lived 1983 NBC series The Half-Hour Comedy Hour, which featured a guest appearance by model Jane Kennedy. He said, This was one of the most beautiful women in the world, and she wore this dress that was very revealing. So much so, the censors wouldn't let us put her on the air in it without adding some material. So we're all talking to her, the writers and whoever, and just in awe of this woman. And Sergio comes walking in looking like a homeless person carrying his portfolio. Jane sees him and shouts, Sergio, and she runs over and starts kissing him passionately. They'd worked together before, it turned out. But Johnny Carson comes walking out into the hallway, and he thinks Jane Kennedy is being sexually assaulted by a homeless person <laughs> in the NBC hallways. He came over to make sure she was okay. She said it was fine, that she knew him, and I said, it's okay, he's a cartoonist. So Johnny gives the classic look and says, I knew I should have taken up drawing. But a but. Indeed. <laughs> Aragonis has written and drawn many other comic books, including Abel's Fables, which is a page of one uh, with a page of one panel gag comics in House of Secrets featuring Abel. This is 1971 through 72 for DC. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Plop from 1973 to 76 from DC. Aragonis provided intros, stories, gags, and or prologues for 23 issues out of the 24 issue run. There was also a, a special, a Sergio special in DC Superstars Presents number 13. This is the March-April 1977 issue, and the issue is actually subtitled The Wild and Wacky World of Sergio Aragonis, and features all new stories and gags. Uh, also, John Sable Freelance number 33, February 1986 cover date from First Comics. The 33rd issue of this Mike Grell uh, comic book features 23 pages of Aragonis art for a story titled Cave of the Half Pints. And uh, he did work with the letterer of this book and most Guru comics, I believe, Yusaji Yojimbo number 11. That was a September 1988 cover date for Antigraphics Books. Features an eight-page Aragonis story titled Cat Nippon and the Missive. All right. Uh, Aragonis <laughs> 3D, that was 1989 from 3D Zone. This is a booklet of wordless humor in 3D, including two pairs of 3D glasses. Buzz and Bell, Space Cadets, that came out in 1991 from Platinum Editions. Graphic novel of wordless humor featuring an astronaut and his monkey buddy. Never heard of that, actually. Me either. Uh, Smokehouse 5, 1991, Platinum Editions also. This is a graphic novel of wordless humor featuring the misadventures of a group of firefighters. And The Mighty Magnor, 1993 to 1994 from Malibu Comics. This is a six-issue superhero miniseries written with Mark Evanier. Uh, Louder Than Words, 1997 from Dark Horse, is a six-issue miniseries of wordless humor. Boogeyman, 1998, also from Dark Horse, it's a four-issue miniseries of humorous horror stories along with Mark Avanier. 
Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, is 1998 from Dark Horse Comics as well. This is a one-shot comic about the annual Mexican celebration honoring the dead, also with Mark Avanier. Fanboy, 1999 DC Comics. This is a six-issue miniseries on comics and society's reaction to them from the point of view of a self-described fanboy, hmm. also with Mark Avanier. You read that one? I've seen it, but I have not read it. I'm interested in that, too. Uh, then there was Blair Witch. Uh, W-H-I-C-H, question mark? Question mark. 1999 <laughs> by Dark Horse. This is a one-shot comic with Mark Avanier. Guess what? Spoofing the movie The Blair Witch Project. Space Circus from 2000 from Dark Horse Comics. This is a four-issue miniseries of a boy joining a circus that travels throughout the galaxy. This was also with Mark Avanier. Action Speak. That was in 2001 from Dark Horse Comics. This is another six-issue miniseries of wordless humor, a sequel to Louder Than Words. And then Sergio Aragones Massacres Marvel, 1996 for Marvel. Sergio Aragones Destroys DC, 1996 in DC. And Sergio Aragones Stomps Star Wars, 2000 for Dark Horse Comics. That's the artist's comical interpretation of the superheroes of both Marvel and DC and the mythology of Star Wars. Uh, all those with Mark Bonnier. Solo number 11, June 2006. This is an issue of the DC Comics Artist Anthology series that they were putting out and uh, features various stories written and illustrated by Aragonis, uh, some biographical, and a Batman story written by Mark Avanier. Bart Simpson in the Simpsons comics, uh, Bongo Comics, is a writer-artist. He's been the writer and artist since Bart Simpson number 50, October 2009, and he did a full issue in Simpson Comics number 163. That's February 2010 cover date. He has a one-to-three-page comic strip called Maggie's Crib in every issue of Bart Simpson since number 50. Uh, Sergio Aragonis Funnies, July 2011 through February 2014 from Bongo Comics. It's a 12-issue anthology of fictional, non-fictional, and autobiographical content in addition to puzzles and related materials under Aragonis' sole authorship. Which is obviously a big deal to him to have maintained those uh, rights. Absolutely. Uh, now, in 2009, Aragonis told an interviewer, I'm thinking and laughing all day long. Every time I think of a joke, I'm also telling myself a new joke. It's a great way to live. Uh, Aragonis' work has won him numerous awards. Here comes the long list, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. He won Shazam Awards for Best Inker Humor Division in 1972 for his work on Mad Magazine and for Best Humor Story in 1972 for The Poster Plague. From House of Mystery number 202, May 1972, cover date, with Steve Skeets. Aragonis received an Inkpot Award in 1976. He won the Harvey Award Special Award for Humor in 1990, 91, 92, 93, 95, 97, 98, 99, and 2001. Seems like you just tell us when he didn't win that award. Right. Uh, He received the National Cartoonist Society Humor Comic Book Award for 1973. 1974, and 1976, he received their Comic Book Award for 1986, their Magazine and Book Illustration Award for 1989, their Special Features Award for 1977, their Gag Cartoon Award for 1983, and their Rubin Award in 1996 for his work on Mad and Grew the Wanderer. Just imagine the mantles in his I house. really <laughs> <laughs> in, in 1985, he was awarded the Adamson Award for Best International Comic Strip or Comic Book Work in Sweden. In 1992, he became the first Mexican ever to win an Eisner Award for his work on Grew the Wanderer, along with Mark Avanier. In 2003, he was awarded La Plumilla de Plata, the sing- silver ink pen in Mexico. But now, isn't he Spanish? But I guess he's got, he's got a lot of... Uh... Nationalities, really. He moved around yeah. a lot as a kid. He's nomadic, yes. So uh, he won the Icon Award from Comic Con International in 2016, kind of the coda to this uh, massive deluge of awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, comp- the Comic Art Professional Society Awards Prize, his name is the Sergio. It's an homage <laughs> to his work. So not only did he get an award, he is an award. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we'll wrap up on Mr. Mark Avanier. He credits himself with convincing Jack Kirby to stop using Vince Coletta as an inker and c- considers himself one of the main vilifiers of Coletta. And that's a story we might have to dig into sometime. I think uh, so. In 1985, he launched the DC Challenge limited series with artist Gene Colan. Uh, Mark wrote the New God series of 1989 to 1991, and in 1992, 
Mark wrote a screenplay for Tom and Jerry, the movie, along with Francis Moss. Mark has produced a number of comic books, including Blackhawk, Crossfire, and Hollywood Superstars with Dan Spiegel, Gru the Wanderer, as we know, with Sergio Aragonis, and The DN Agent with Will Mugnat? Mugnat? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, for those Spiegel comics, and Vanier contributed lengthy essays on the entertainment industry. Vanier collaborated with Joe Staten on the Superman and Bugs Bunny miniseries in the year 2000. Mark is uh, most noted in animation for his work on Garfield and Friends. That was a series that ran from 1988 through 1994. Seven-season seven series, uh, Vanier wrote or co-wrote nearly every episode and acted as a voice recording director. Since 2008, Vanier has been the co-writer and voice director of The Garfield Show, which would go on to win a Daytime Emmy Award for June Foray. Uh, Mark's also won a lot of awards, and we're going to list them off here. Sure. In uh, 1975, he won an Ink Pot Award. 1992 won Best Humor Publication Eisner Award for Grew the Wanderer. In 97, he won Best Humor Publication Eisner Award for Sergio Aragones Destroys DC and Sergio Aragones Massacres Marvel. In 1991, won Best Humor Publication Eisner Award for Sergio Aragones Grew. 2001, he won the Bob Clampett Humanitarian Award. In 2009, Kirby King of Comics, uh, that's a book he wrote, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, that won uh, Best Comics-Related Book Eisner Award. It's pretty much the best Kirby book, if, you, if, that's, if you're looking for one. I'm picturing the cover of it, yeah. It's, and it's got some great reproductions. It's kind of oversized, and, uh, I mean, this guy worked with him, so he has a lot of insight. Absolutely. Um, but boy, is it! It's a large one. I'll tell you what. If you don't, if you don't have the shelf space, I, I am with you on that one. Uh, now let's talk about this weird upstart publisher that you know said everyone on their ear, Pacific Comics. Uh, in 1971, the Shanes, the Shanes brothers. How do you like that? Shanes, 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 Shanes. The Shanes brothers, Steve Shanes, age 17, and Bill Shanes, age 13, co-founded Pacific Comics. Started out as a mail-order company selling to customers via ads in the Comic Buyer's Guide. This led to advertisements inside some Marvel comics and ultimately to tangible retail stores. The first Pacific Comics store opened in Pacific Beach, California in 1974. Business was so brisk that the brothers realized they couldn't get merchandise for the stores and so set up a distribution system which was soon supplying neighboring stores as well. The move from newsstand distribution to the direct market happened in the 1970s, partly due to the Shane brothers. And yes, uh, the Weird Comics History series on the direct in on the direct market is still still in the works. In the works. This will be part of it. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, by the late 1970s, comics were selling well, and Pacific expanded its distribution systems nationwide. They raised $200,000 by closing its four San Diego retail locations and selling off inventory, rising rapidly to the top of the new distribution system. In the six years between 1974 and 1980, comic or fantasy-related specialty stop shops uh, rose from numbering in the 200-300 range to about 1,500, wow. while Pacific was operating at a, out of a 2,200-square-foot office-slash-warehouse in Kearney Mesa with uh, 500 wholesale accounts. According to the elder brother Steve, the company, quote, grossed just under a million dollars that year and soon had to double its floor space. In 1979, Pacific dipped its feet into publishing when they released Warriors of Shadow Realm, a John Buscema portfolio of six signed colored plates. This was meant to accompany a Doug Mention Buscema three-issue Weird World, Weird World epic fantasy tale, which ran in Marvel Comics Super Special, numbers 11 through 13, that was June through October 1979 cover dates. In 1981, rival publisher Capital City launched a black-and-white title, Nexus, and distributed it through their own system. The Shanes brothers took note and decided to follow suit, even though they were still paying off debt from a $300,000 bank loan taken out in 1979 at 25% interest. A little foreshadowing for you. Uh, Steve, who with a degree in sculpture and had a background in art, handled negotiations with, with creators while Bill took on the business and accounting end. The brothers soon turned to Jack Kirby. Uh, Steve Shanes recalled, I figured if you want to get people's attention with a new comic book, who better to do it than the king of comics, Jack Kirby? We were already friends with Jack. We used to send him free copies of comics he'd drawn for other publishers because they never sent him any. So 
So I just went ahead and called him up on the phone, and he turned out to be a nice guy, completely accessible. We negotiated a whole detailed publishing deal between the two of us. No middlemen. The Shane brothers asked Kirby, who had effectively quit comics in 1977, for only the publishing rights, assuring him that he would keep full ownership and copyrights. And they would even help him license characters for use overseas and uh, in other media. Thus, Pacific Comics claims to be the first company to play pay royalty payments to Kirby, ever. Uh, Kirby provided Pacific with Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, which was published bi-monthly from August 1981, out of 14 issues, including a special lasting until 1984. Though the Shanes Brothers anticipated sales of less than 25,000, the first issue sold 110,000 copies. Kirby then let Pacific publish his Silver Star, and the brothers decided to start a line of full-color mainstream comic books, uh, that Silver Star had six issues, all in 1983. Before long, Pacific had attracted interest from other comics professionals, including Mike Grell, who had planned his Star Slayer series to appear in D- from D.C. But after a drop from the schedule, the Shanes brothers approached Grell about publishing it. Another invitee was then-aspiring artist Dave Stevens, who purchased comics from Pacific's shops and had met the brothers at the San Diego Comic-Con in 1981. When Star Slayer No. 2, that's April 1982 cover date, came up short a few pages, Stevens was approached to fill in the remaining pages, and ultimately came up with the Rocketeer. In 1983, Pacific upgraded to a paper with higher quality ink. Uh, Pacific's innovations in uh, creator-owned properties and high-quality printings were soon imitated by industry leaders, DC Comics and Marvel Comics. And as Sergio told uh, himself at the beginning of Grew the Wanderer No. 1. That's right. I mean, you can't... You know, Pacific wasn't the only company out there, but these companies were sort of making a ruckus. They were forcing Mm -hmm. DC's and Marvel's hand to change their practices. Uh, Now, Pacific continued to distribute and publish comics, running both operations from a San Diego warehouse to which they'd moved in July 1982. They also purchased a firehouse in Steelville, Illinois, and converted that into a distribution hub. It was also operating warehouses in L.A. and Phoenix at the time. Printing about 500,000 comic books every month, the Shanes Brothers employed around 40 people at their San Diego operation alone, and were grossing over $3.5 million per year. The brothers hired their father, Stephen E. Shanes, as financial vice president, and their mother, Christine Mara, as office manager. Elder brother Paul Pablo worked in financial records department, and sister Chris, an L.A.-based attorney, provided counsel on legal affairs. It was just a whole family operation, huh? Indeed. I know. <laughs> Pacific's published uh, output contained editorials by David Scroggy, who had started as a comics retailer in 1975 and had risen to general manager of Pacific's four San Diego shops by the late 70s. He helped to bring uh, the reclusive Steve Ditko to Pacific. Uh, Ditko's Pacific offering, Missing Man, was previewed in Captain Victory Number 6. That's November 1981 cover date and then featured in issues of Pacific Presents. Uh, his work was scripted by Mark Avanier. Meanwhile, Pacific published a magazine-sized black-and-white reprint of Raj 2000 stories that John Byrne had done in the 70s for Charlton Comics, as well as a number of titles under its parent company, Blue Dolphin Enterprises. Pacific also welcomed Bruce Jones to the company and Sergio Aragonis and Mark Avanier's Grew the Wanderer, as we now know. And then by 1984, Steve Shanes decided to bring back 3D to comics. This was a fleeting trend in the 1950s that had been stymied by poor printing separations. Ray Zone was hired to do the production, and after he'd successfully converted a uh, Kirby image for Honeycomb Serial, Steve Shanes decided the 3D book would be Alien Worlds 3D, featuring their first published work of Art Adams alongside John Bolton, Bill Ray, and others. Sales in the expensively produced comic, however, were poor, and sales all around the industry were kind of following suit at the time. One-shots became more common, and tolerable sales of Elric of Melnibone uh, stumbled when First Comics acquired the rights, putting Pacific in the awkward position of continuing as distributor on a comic from a rival publisher that they had helped promote. Mm. Uh, after organizational difficulties pushed back the release of Star Slayer by several months, Mike Grell decided to take his creator-owned property to First Comics. A domino effect occurred as a loss of a high-profile title to a rival publisher engendered bad industry PR, which led to other creators to also lose faith in Pacific. 
More importantly, the distribu- distribution arm of Pacific was suffering serious problems, due in part to an overly generous credit extension to retailers, which were not paid back as quickly as expected or as needed. Yeah. Um, now, Steve Shanes explains, Most of our comic books still made money hand over fist, but there was a big problem in distribution. We extended too much credit to retailers who didn't pay us on a timely basis, and we were already working on a minuscule profit margin, maybe 5% to 8%. We didn't push hard enough to get the money from receivables, who owed us hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you had to boil down a single biggest reason we blew it, that would be our poor cash management on the distribution side. So, Pacific found itself distributing competitors' titles, including those of Kitchen Sink Press, Last Gasp, and Ripoff Press. With this in mind, other publishers feared that having Pacific, a rival publisher, as their distributor, could result in their being cut off from comic shops. This played a factor in the multiple alternate distributors who came into being just to compete with Pacific, until nearly a quarter of Pacific comic shops' accounts defected to alternate distributors in 1984. They also skipped out on paying Pacific for upwards of three months of comic books. That is, and that is what pretty much the end. Uh, <laughs> at that same time, Pacific and parent company Blue Dolphin Enterprises found themselves the target of lawsuits, including some dealing with foreign rights and royalties for Pacific published creator-owned titles. In August 1984, with the company $740,000 in debt, the Shanes brothers informed their staff they would all be out of work by September. According to Steve Shane's, Pacific's publishing arm was still seeing profit at the time of closure, but it was outweighed by the losses of the distribution arm, and he and his brother lacked the business expertise to cope with this. Yeah, they didn't seem cut out for the business side of it. No. Um, after the 1984 collapse of Pacific, many of its creator-owned publications moved to Eclipse Comics. Bruce Jones' Twisted Tales, Alien Words, I'm sorry, Alien Worlds, and Somerset Holmes, uh, Dave Stevens' Rocketeer special and the one-shot of Mark Avanier and Sergio Aragonis' Grew the Wanderer. We also learned that uh, they were supposed to be the, the home of Miracle Man. That's but, right. Uh, that didn't quite work out. No. Um, as Pacific went into liquidation in September 1984, their distribution centers and warehouses were purchased by Bud Plant Incorporated and Capital City Distribution. Steve Shanes and his wife, Anna Fira, subsequently founded Blackthorn Publishing. And Bill Shane's found employment with Diamond's Comic Distributors. Which makes sense. And, you know, as a, as a young kid, I remember when you saw comics in the, in the store, hmm. uh, Pacifics were the ones that looked closest to an official comic, if you know what I mean. They, had, they seemed to have the right look, like the yeah. right corner box, you know, and like their logo was correct. They didn't look wacky. They didn't look, they looked official, you know what I mean? A lot of the other ones sure. looked much more independent, but, uh, you know, they uh, didn't last too, too long. That was the tough oh, thing. So, I, just to close up as a hook for the episode, I want to talk a little bit about barbarians and what a barbarian is and what, what the, <laughs> just what the heck was Gru, a guy in a orange tunic with katanas. Like, that, yes. that does not, that's kind of incongruous. Uh, <laughs> so, colloquially, a barbarian is someone who is perceived to be either uncivilized or primitive, even today. Now, the ancient Greek name Barbaros, or barbarian, was an antonym for Polites, meaning citizen, from the word polis, which means city-state. The Greeks used the term barbarian for all non-Greek-speaking peoples, including the Egyptians, Persians, Medes, and Phoenicians, emphasizing their otherness because the language they spoke sounded to Greeks like gibberish, represented by the sounds bar, 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 bar. But it's important to say that this, their distinction here was more like Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't like barbarians were bad, they were just not Greek. That was, that was the point of the word at first. Uh, this created the word barbaros, not the other way around, although a word barbara is also found in the Sanskrit of ancient India with the primary meaning of stammering. And this is where we get the word babel. So they all kind of, this is etymology, folks. It's all kind yes. of in a maloo. <laughs> <laughs> the term was also used, however, by Greeks, especially the Athenians, uh, to deride other Greek tribes and states, such as Eparitus, Aliens, sure. Macedonians, Boeotians, and Aeolic speakers, and also fellow Athenians in a mean-spirited and politically motivated manner. Uh, in general, though, barbarian was a term meant only to signify people that didn't speak and weren't Greek until the Greco-Persian Wars in the first half of the 5th century BC. 
Here, a hasty coalition of Greeks defeated the vast Persian Empire, and in the Greek of the periods, uh, barbarian, and, and in the Greek of this period, barbarian is used expressly to refer to the Persians. Mm, and you see now where the connotations will change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next empire up to bat, the Romans, used the term barbarous for uncivilized people, opposite to Greek or Roman. Greek attitudes towards barbarians developed in parallel with the growth of human slavery, especially in Athens. Under the Athenian democracy established uh, circa 508 BC, slavery came into use on a scale never before seen among the Greeks. Many slaves worked under especially brutal conditions in the silver mines at Lorillon and in southeastern Attica uh, after the discovery of a major vein of silver bearing ore there in 483 BC. Furthermore, the slave ownership no longer became the preserve of the rich. All but the poorest of Athenian households came to have slaves in order to supplement the work of their free members. The slaves of Athens that had barbarian origins were coming especially from lands around the Black Sea, such as the Thrace and Taurica, Crimea, or now Crimea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, while Lydians, Phrygians, and Carians came from Asia Minor. It's also, those don't sound like they're from the... the um... Martians, right? This is like right? very Martians. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> now, from this period, words like barbarophonos, uh, as seen in Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, came into use not only for the sound of a foreign language, but also for foreigners who spoke Greek improperly. In the Greek language, the word logos expressed both the notions of language and reason. So Greek speakers readily conflated speaking poorly with stupidity. Mm. A lot of uh, a lot of us uh, New York twanging people. Oh <laughs> yes, I mean it, it, this is all interesting because this is this is essentially where we are now. A lot of people, right? you know, if, it, <laughs> if they don't they don't understand your language, they assume you're saying something dumb, dumb or mean. Yeah. <laughs> now, finally, the Roman senator Cassiodorus made a fake etymology for the word, who stated that the word barbarian was made up of barda, barba for beard and rus for flat land. For barbarians did not live in cities, making their abodes in the fields like wild animals. But it was a totally fake origin for that word. (laughs) Uh, In truth, the kind of berserker mercenary that Gru plays likely never actually existed. And if he did, they would have more choice words for him than just barbarian. Uh, You know, murderer? Killer? That might have been more more to the point. Uh, It's more likely, though, that Gru is a Mongolian, a remnant of the folks that took over Asia and much of Europe in the late 13th century. They did use katanas, some of them, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unknown whether Sergio Aragonis or Mark Evanier know or care about this distinction. They were just satirizing Conan the Barbarian, after all. But I thought it was interesting to dive into this. And uh, if, sure. if we ever do, uh, you know, other barbarian-based books, I bet there will be more stuff to reveal. Absolutely. Now, before we go today, we're going we're to read off some nice reviews we got from Stitcher. Did you, did you know we had reviews on Stitcher? I did not. No, that that came as a complete surprise <laughs> to me. I had no idea you could even put reviews there, but apparently you can, and it's been done. It has been, and it has also been done by the fellow who uh, requested the book we discussed today. That's Big Ox 737, uh, Mr. Uh, Jones Goldstein. That's right. He says, if you like comics, this is the podcast for you. If you like, If you like comics with an X, this is the podcast for you. Chris and Reggie are a great team and fun to listen to. They discuss all kinds of comics from all eras. They've done a series of episodes on underground comics. They've done a series on the history of the Comics Code Authority. They've talked about some of the greatest writers and artists. They even talk about comics you may never have heard of. Every episode is very entertaining and engaging. Highly recommended. Well, thank you very much, Jeremiah. And there's another one from Bill underscore TX. I'm not sure who that is. I'm not sure either. I'm not even going to guess. I have a guess here, and I don't think it's right, but... uh, Whoever this is, Bill from Texas says, These guys not only know their comics, but the show is always well-produced, well-researched, and often very funny. The latest episode on the atrocious gymnastics number one was a real knee-slapper. I always enjoy that they provide some background on the creators and characters involved, plus plenty of other background info relating to the comics that they discuss. And uh, we did have a great time with that gymnastics number oh, one, yeah. I'll tell you what. So uh, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Bill. And uh, anybody leaving us reviews, uh, they definitely, apparently it does good things for us, but it also makes us feel nice. So if you yes. are of a mind to do so, you can feel free to leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or really 
<laughs> anywhere else i don't know <laughs> there's a lot of places apparently where you can leave reviews I guess. <laughs> we're, we're still searching we're still digging this we'll, we'll try to find thumbs up. this will become sort of like a fun little easter egg hunt you know find my <laughs> find your reviews but Very uh true. don't we appreciate it and uh if you just want to contact us directly you want to talk about Gru, you want to talk about sergio argonis you want to talk about pacific comics or you want to talk about barbarians you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. Check us out on Tumblr, cosmic history.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmic and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly uh, com writings mostly on DC Comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And check out Chris's personal blog over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where he Reviews a different DC comic every day of the week for many, many weeks going. And this month, <laughs> you're doing Brightest May, which is your dissection of brightest, the Brightest Day DC Comics event. And yes. uh, I'll tell you, folks, if you don't know about it or if you were like me, if you read it in a certain format and you sort of like passed on it, you really got to go back. He, he, Chris is pulling this thing apart and uh, without revealing too much, so you got to go check it out. You think you found where... The Flashpoint event went from being just an event to the to the monumental rebooting. reboot. Yeah, <laughs> and and that that post actually got a a like from Jeff Johns. That's right, which he may rescind later on. Uh, <laughs> he just <laughs> might. He gets around to reading but, it. <laughs> uh, it. No, it doesn't cut it. It's, I'm telling you, it's great. This is not a snarky site. Chris breaks on every comic and then gives his thoughts on it and uh, shows you the ad. Shows you lots of panels. Next best thing to read in the comic books, you got to check it out. Chris on infiniteearths.com. Thank you. We also have the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll find all of our show notes, our box sets, our weird comics history, our cosmic treadmills, our images, our videos, all that good stuff. And uh, also, the the in order, the, what, what I with a chronological. That's right. Chronological <laughs> listings of our. Yeah, yes. the, the pod bean is too crazy. So if you want to listen to our stuff chronologically, Gotta go to weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, yeah. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube if you search for Weird Comics History as all one word. And uh, we want to thank Jeremiah again for the suggestion. We had fun with this. This brought back some nice Absolutely. memories. And uh, we always like to have a fun gag comic. Next week we are doing our segment for the uh, JL May crossover. Mm-hmm. So uh, look forward to that. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I just wanted to thank everyone for their uh, condolences. That's for right, our, for Uncle uh, Treadmill. For our Uncle Edward Treadmill. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, oh, we had a lot, of, a lot of love on the social medias for our loss, and uh, we, we appreciate every single one. We did. That, that was very nice. People really did reach out to us. You should have shown them how you went to the store and got a bouquet of iTunes cards to send the, uh, <laughs> send the guy to get the $10 million, you know? <laughs> Still waiting on it. It's still waiting. It'll be here any minute, and then we will, any we, will we will summarily end the podcast at that moment when we get that money. <laughs> or, or it'll just go. We'll just get our own studio. Maybe we'll do, maybe we'll, we'll, go, we'll go television or something. But uh, yes. <laughs> if that's all we got from this week, Chris, I think I'm going to tell him to keep it on the treadmill barbarically. See ya. You're the fighter. You've got the fight.